as the kids are sliding out, um, let me encourage you to turn to a couple of places in your Bible. First of those is Ephesians chapter 2. You want to mark that. And then once you find that, turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Now, if you're in Romans chapter 2, let me invite you to stand with me. I want to read to you verses 1 through 16, and then turn to the Lord in prayer. And let me remind you that what I'm reading to you this morning is the words of our Lord. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse... Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and then do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There'll be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but rather the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves." And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when according to my gospel, Paul says, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I echo in my brothers this morning. We praise you and we thank you for the the opportunity of worship, the privilege of worship. Now, Father, I pray that we take seriously the responsibility of worship. Let us not come before you hypocritically, dressed outwardly, but refusing to repent and hear the word of God and obey it inwardly. Let us not be those sorts of shallow hearted people, Father. 
But I pray, Father, that you would find us standing before the word of God with great humility this morning, understanding that your word alone is truth. And in order for us to be truthful and honest and righteous before you, we have to turn from our own way and learn to walk in your way. Father, I implore you to be gracious to us. To give us the understanding that we need to give me the words that we need for you to explain your truth to our souls in order that we might understand and believe. Lord, we praise you and we love you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. By this far along in Romans, I understand greatly the load that's on you. I know that you experience the load, and we joke about it from week to week, uh, how difficult these passages are, but I want you to realize that you're not alone in that difficulty at all. I, I bear this load, and I have struggled this week to bear it. These are difficult passages, so I trust that you'll pray for me as I've prayed for you to hear the word of our Lord as we walk through these things. But at the same time, I've been absolutely amazed at what God has done in the Apostle Paul's life. He prepared that man to write these messages even before he came to faith in Christ because he gave him such a tremendous mind and he enabled him to argue, debate, or present his case in a very powerful way And these passages are perhaps some of the most profound and convicting passages that we've ever found ourselves in the whole of Scripture in the last nine years. You know, I realized when we walked through Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, that he's not speaking to us, right? There are no ungodly, unrighteous men among us who are idolaters, atheists, homosexuals, the long list of 118. I realize there's none of there among us. Yet, when we see the reason that the wrath of God is poured out on them in in verse 18, where he says, the men who suppress the truth. When we hear the reason for their wrath, it immediately causes our soul to pause because we understand, oh Lord, how many times... Have I suppressed your truth within my heart? It's amazing that Paul writes in that, what is that, third person they, and yet we find conviction in what he is saying, even though we understand he's not speaking to us, because we understand that we suppress the truth. When we walk into Romans chapter 2, it's going to be the very same thing. If you'll notice with me, Therefore, you have no excuse. Now, before we go off into running into the you and think, well, he's finally speaking to us. Well, by the time you get over into verse 17 of chapter 2, you realize he's not speaking to us because he says, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. So once again, he presents to us something at first glance we think has nothing to do with us because we're certainly not Jewish. Holit is not a Jewish name. Saints might be Catholic, but not Jewish, right? Hancock, Haynes, not Jewish. We don't have any Jews in here, right? 
And so we can relax and go, well, he's not speaking to us until we get down to verse three. And it says this. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself? And all of a sudden you're like, okay, in the second person Jew conversation, all of a sudden I've been dragged into this discussion and I realize that the reason that the wrath of God is being poured out on them could very well for the very same reasons be poured out on me. Because we have a tendency to condemn and to push others down all the while we justify our own actions. Now it is hidden for us. I told you quite a bit in the, it's hidden for us in the English, but it's, Quite a bit clearer in the Greek in verse 18 when he says the ungodliness, unrighteousness of men. And I told you that's the generic word for man, anthropos, which literally means mankind. So, again, Paul's a master. We think he's speaking about the Gentiles, right? The immoral idolaters. But he begins with, OK, mankind who suppress the truth. And he does the exact same thing in verse 3, where he says, do you suppose this? Oh man, he goes back to this word, mankind, who judge others and yet do the very same things. So again, at first glance, we think we're free. At second glance, we realize, man, you've dragged us all into this pit, and we've got to hear your words, Paul, because you are indeed speaking to us. Of course, we know the ultimate conclusion He's bringing all of mankind up under the judgment of God, for they are all likewise in desperate need of the grace of God and the gospel. So by the time we get to Romans 3, if we're not all passed out somewhere because of it, we'll get to the conclusion, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul buries the immoral man in the wrath of God. Then he buries the moral man into the wrath of God. And then he comes to, to Romans 3 and he buries us all in the wrath and judgment of God. And we realize that we're only raised to resurrected life through the grace of God that he has displayed in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's going to be a, a painful process as we continue walking through Romans. Now, hopefully you noticed a problem or at least I read something that made you very uncomfortable this is where we like to be. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. And I want you to notice verse 28. This is the trumpet we blow from every pulpit and podium in this building. Romans 3, 28. For we maintain that a man is justified, which means declared innocent, not guilty, by faith apart from works. We sound that alarm as high and as far and as long as we can sound that horn, that we are justified not by the things we do, but by faith in the one who has done all things on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. We say this in verse 24, if you'll look up just a little bit, 324, being justified as a gift, no less, being declared innocent as a gift by grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And I'm so thankful that we're a church that believes the truth. But if you'll turn back to Romans chapter 2, at the end of verse 5, where he says, In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, immediately we're like, wait a minute, 
And then he goes on to make it worse in verse 7 to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. And you've got this last phrase, receive eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, their judgment, wrath and indignation, for there will be distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. And you're like, man, that, that flies in the face of Romans 3. What in the world is Apostle Paul doing? Is he contradicting himself? Do we receive heaven by good works or not? I mean, really, you're going to have to make up your mind. And so, as I've told you often before, when two passages seem to contradict one another, here's the truth of it. You either don't understand one of them or you don't understand either one of them because none of God's Word contradicts itself. Now, I told you we're going to get into the issue of judging this morning, and I'll show you that very clearly. And I've bared the load of that this week. You're going to fall under conviction for the things that you've judged other people and then you turn right around and do the same thing will fall under that load. But I'm under also the conviction of my responsibility to communicate this to you faithfully. I've got to draw a line that, frankly, I don't think you've ever drawn nor considered. And that's the line that goes in between justification and judgment. Because frankly, I'm thankful for those of you who aren't raised in church because you don't have all this stuff in your brain that you had to unpack. And I've wrestled with this passage more than I've wrestled with any passage in as long as I can possibly remember because I've got all this junk. What we like to do is we like to take our theology, we're saved by faith, period. And we like to read that into every other passage. So when we run across a passage that seems difficult for us, we figure out a crafty way to kind of dismiss it because we want everything in its proper theological box. And those hard passages, well, we'll figure out a way to deal with those, but they certainly don't apply to us. Especially in regard to judgment, I've been raised, and I know some of you have probably been raised, that there's like three or four different kinds of judgments. And some go so far to say is the Christian is never in judgment for what need is a Christian to be under judgment because he has Jesus. And when we walk into glory and Peter looks at us and there's this long line of people that are waiting for their opportunity or rather dreading their opportunity to stand before God and be held accountable for their deeds. We just flash this kind of VIP pass that says washed in the blood and we go on to the back where we can finally drink wine and dance and have a big party. But that's not the picture we get from the text. If we can't draw a line between justification and judgment, I'm afraid we don't understand justification and the work of God in our hearts. So that's the task that I'm going to take on this morning, and hopefully we can all do that. But you know me, I'm not going to be satisfied with this sermon, nor the second or the third. Hopefully by the fourth time we walk through Romans 2, I'll finally be satisfied with it and we can go on. But I want you to notice, look at, look at Romans verse 1. He brings up our judgment, you who pass judgment in verse 1. Uh, halfway through the verse, you judge another. Uh, for who judge, you practice the same things. He brings up the subject of judgment. He starts by our judgment. But then he quickly in verse 2 turns to the judgment of God. We know that the judgment of God. Look at the very end of verse 3. That you will escape the judgment of God. Look at the end of verse 5. 
in the day of the wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Look at the end of the section, verse 16. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge. And so we have to remind ourselves that these passages are about judgment. And so we have to be careful where we bring justification into these passages. We have to understand the issue of judgment. And so Paul lays out several of these principles in regard to the issue of judgment. Okay? Principle number one, and I don't usually number them for you, but he he kind of reels them off in this sort of fashion. The first principle in regard to the judgment of God is the basis for God's judgment. And the very basis for God's judgment is truth. Now that in itself is a terrifying thing. But the basis for God's judgment is solely this, it's truth. If you'll notice, you'll pick it up in verse 5, where he says at the conclusion of verse 5, in the day of wrath and revelation of the what judgment? The righteous judgment. And I told you all throughout the book of Romans, Paul's going to use this word righteous, righteousness over and over and over again and to simplify it. I don't think it could be said, or said better than this. When he talks about righteous or righteousness, he simply means the doing of what is right. It's right. And so when we think about the judgment of God, the first thing that Paul wants to describe the judgment of God is it's right. In every detail, in every action, in every thought, what God judges in that day will be exactly, perfectly right. But then you really pick it up in Romans 2, 2. Not so much if you have NAS or ESV or even NIV. If you'll notice verse 2, notice what the NAS says. I think most of you have that. And we know that the judgment of God rightly, there's that word, rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But the King James really does a better translation here. And maybe Tyler has Romans 2, 2. I gave him several this morning, but I forget now. There you go. This is a more literal interpretation of Romans 2, 2. We are sure that the judgment of God is according to what? Truth against all those who commit such things, talking about in, in chapter 1. The judgment of God is according to truth. And if you'll notice, there's no article there. There's no the there, according to the truth. In other words, the judgment of God is not according to a particular set of truths. You know, he, he's got a list of things up there and he's going to hold us accountable for the list that he has. And so it's going to be a particular set of truths. That's not what he's saying. There's no article there. Meaning the judgment of God, the basis for it is that which is by quality truth. It's truth from beginning to end. There's no part of God's judgment that will be separated from truth. And that ought to terrify you because you and I don't live in truth. We make up our own truth. We hide ourselves. We put on makeup spiritually, so to speak, to hide who we really are because we want to avoid the truth. Because if you knew the truth, well, we'd have a very different relationship. If you knew the truth about me and everything in regard to me, you wouldn't be here this morning. And if I knew the truth about you, I would be afraid of you and wouldn't be standing up here this morning. But we have to understand when we, when we gather before God, we will not offer excuse. There will be no justifications. No buts are allowed. It's just simple truth from beginning 
to end, we'll be saturated in it, and we'll be found out. And we can't bring before us, again, some self-justification if we're found out to be unforgiving in our heart. We can't bring that person before us in the judgment. I'll show you why that is in just a second. And go, yeah, I, I know what you're saying, Lord. I hear you accusing me of, of unforgiveness. But here, I've brought the one and I want them to describe in great detail what they did to me. And then you'll understand. That's not going to happen. Because God's judgment is based on truth and He knows the beginning as well as the end and every twist and turn along the way. He's omniscient. Remember, He knows all things. And so the first terrifying reality that we come to in regard to the judgment of God is that the very basis of it is truth, that which is by quality true. Our judgment could not be more different. Again, look at verse 3 with me. Do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? If there's one word that I would not use to describe man's judgment, including my own, it's truth. Because of our fallen nature, all of our judgments are biased. We justify the people we love now, starting with number one, and those around us that we approve of and we justify their actions and we approve of them, but those we don't like, those who have insulted us, those that we disagree with, we judge them harshly. And God says, you don't even realize, you, you do the same yourself. Let's talk about uh, Romans 1.18. The particular subject in 1.18 was homosexuality. And we judge that as wrong. In fact, if you'll notice verse 2 of chapter 2, so does the Apostle Paul. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. I'm not saying that that judgment is, is not true of you to say that that's wrong. But are you really going to lift the finger and judge and condemn for that wrong when you're sexually immoral yourself? How can you say homosexuality is wrong when you lust after members of the opposite sex? When you allow immoral thoughts to turn into your head? When you look at things on the computer that you know are immoral and wrong and you're going to stand up and you're going to say, they deserve hell, but I don't. I have Jesus. I know what I do wrong, but I have Jesus. I know it's immoral, but I have Jesus. It's okay. Paul says, do you really think you're going to escape the judgment of God? You're absolutely deceiving yourself. Our judgment is, again, we approve. And there's so many different ways that we do this. You know, I've got visitors here, but let me, you will learn that I offend on almost every single occasion. But, you know, we just went through election time and I, I saw this as clearly, I think, as I've ever seen it in my life, this issue of judging others and justifying our own thinking. Because we know those who have approved of homosexuality. We know those who approve of abortion. And in verse 32 of chapter 1, that's the first thing that I thought of, a particular political party. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice these things are worthy of death, 
they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Yes, go to it. Yes, they say. We'll pass laws so you can do it. Now, is that wrong? It's wrong all day long. But we'll take our candidate and we will justify him before our eyes, even though that we've got forgotten verse 29, just before verse 32, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed. Verse 30, slanderers, insolent. You know what insolent is? Boldly saying something rude. Arrogant, boastful. You see, it's amazing what you and I do when we're dealing with our own family, our own kids. We justify them and we condemn others. It's amazing what we do when politics comes up in the scene because we'll condemn the candidate we disapprove of. We'll send them straight to hell. But then we'll take our candidate and turn a blind eye to everything else that we see in their life and go, yeah, I approve. And God says, your judgment is silly. It's just silly. You justify and you condemn without any truth whatsoever. One more, I thought about how we do our kids. You know, you go to Walmart and you see some kid jerking things off the shelf, just acting like a nut. And you think, oh, some parent don't know how to discipline their kid. And then you turn around and it's your kid. And you know what you say? Oh, they're hungry. They're tired. Come on, honey. Let me get you a toy. We do it all the time. But don't you praise God that God's not like that? It's just squared up truth. And to that we will all be judged. And i got to go on. The scope of all of God's judgment is all men. Look at verse 6. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each person according to his deeds. To each person. Now run with me. You keep a finger there and run to Romans 14. It gets even more clear. Run with me to Romans 14, verse 10. It's, a, it's even more terrifying. Romans 14, verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Meaning, you, as you're going back to Romans 2. All men shall give an account of their lives before God, and all men will do that alone. Again, I'll take you back to some crazy theology that I've been taught that this is not going to take place because I'm Jesus and this is only for unbelievers, but that's not what the text says at all, is it? It says we will all give an account of our life before God, and the picture that's drawn there is you by yourself. And if that makes you uncomfortable, that's good. It means you're paying attention. Somehow, we love justification by faith so much, we remove the Christian from every moment of suffering and every moment of accountability and every moment of uncomfortableness that we can find in the Scriptures because we're going to be taken out, moved, done something with, so we don't have to experience any of this stuff 
But that's not what the text says. You will hold account of yourself before God. And you can remember that as a child when dad got home and all day long your mama kept saying, wait till your dad gets home, wait till your dad gets home, wait till your dad gets home, and then dad gets home. And he says, go in my room, son. You start crying before you get there. Do you realize there's coming a day, according to the Word of God, where you're going to stand before your Heavenly Father and give an account? You see, that strikes fear in my heart. And I realize we're justified by faith, but I also realize that I've got to be able to draw this line between justified by faith and the judgment of God and the understanding that I'm going to stand before God and give an account for my actions. Because that is clearly demonstrated for us in Scripture. And notice this, the account or the judgment rather is based on works. Look back in Romans 2 verse 6. He will render to each person according to his deeds. According to his deeds. Now, what follows here again is some very uncomfortable verses. And he's so clear about this that there is a particular order as we follow through 7 and 8 and then 9 and 10 I want to show you the flow first he's going to talk about character then he's going to talk about pursuit and then he's going to talk about results for instance look in verse 7 to those who by perseverance there's the character and let me stop right there before I go on to the pursuit of doing good the character of perseverance is often military language and here's the picture the man goes out against his foe or against his enemy to defeat him or to overpower him. And even though that man receives a great many and powerful blows, not one of them discourages him because he is absolutely committed to overwhelming and overpowering his enemy. That's the word perseverance. He's absolutely committed no matter about the circumstances and experiences of life. He's absolutely committed to the doing of good. So his character is in perseverance, but his pursuit is in the doing of good. He seeks for glory. He seeks for honor. He seeks for immortality. Sounds a lot like the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. They hunger and thirst for righteousness, but nonetheless, look at the result, eternal life. And then it is exactly the same thing for the wicked in verse 8. First, the character, they're selfishly ambitious. They're motivated by themselves. Notice their pursuit. They do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. And notice the result, wrath and indignation. Now, so that you understand the point, he flips the order. And he talks about the final result. And then he talks about the reason behind the result. Look in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress. There's your result. Now, why? What's the reason for this? For every soul of man who does evil, there's his pursuit. Notice verse 10, the end of the game, the result, glory, honor, and peace to everyone. Notice there's pursuits, who does good. Meaning this, wherever you find yourself forevermore in eternity, you'll be able to draw a straight line from that point to the reason for it, and you'll draw it right back to yourself. Every single man in hell will be there because God's judgment is true and God has judged him justly and he's there because of the things that he's done. Okay? So we have to understand what Paul is communicating to us. Now, again, are we judged on works? Are we justified? 
will understand the difference. But I want to show you some passages that I hope cause you some struggle. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I got them all up here. Tyler, 2 Corinthians 5. Did I give you that one? I may not have. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I do want to park the bus here for just a little while and examine this more than anything else. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. Because I want to stay on this issue of works and in judgment. Verse 10, For we must all appear... 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In other words, this reality of judgment is taught in more than one place. And we need to let that resonate in our hearts often. So why is this? How can this be? Because again, either I created my own theology as young or I, I got it from how I was taught that because of my faith in Christ, all of these things are taken care of. I don't even have to deal with this, man. This is just for unbelievers. This is not for me. But yet the text says every man. And even in, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says good and evil. So what's the deal here? So let me see if I can help explain this to you. And I think Tyler has most of these up here for you. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9. How does Paul say this? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, or effeminate, or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor violers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, if we're justified by faith and faith alone, why are you giving us a list? Is it by faith plus you don't do these, these particular things? I mean, why in the world would he say that? Why does he say, don't be deceived. All those who are not faith in Christ will spend eternity in hell. Why don't you just say that? Because that's what our theology says. Why are you going to give us a list that makes me very uncomfortable? I mean, really, swindlers and, and the covetous? I mean, don't we all struggle with that sort of thing? And haven't we all slipped a pencil in our pocket or a pen from the bank that really didn't belong to us? And I mean, is it faith plus a, a particular list of things? What about this passage, 1 John 2, 3 through 4? You don't have to turn there. Tyler has it up here. By this we know that we have come to know Christ if we, what in the world? Keep His commandments. Notice the next passage. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. Well, what about that? How in the world are we going to draw a line between justification and judgment there? I mean, has John, the one who referred to himself as the one who Jesus loved or the beloved, the one who rested on the bosom of the Lord, the one in Revelations who fell down dead before Jesus, says, I, if I don't keep His commandments, I don't know Him. I'm a liar. So we better figure out how to draw this line between justification and judgment because we're going to stand in the judgment. And certainly if we're justified, we're justified by faith alone. But I want you to go with me now 
Tyler doesn't have this particular one. I want you to go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. So you're in Romans, and this is the passage that we marked. Ephesians chapter 2. Now we're very familiar with this chapter. We spent well over a year walking through the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2 is a tremendous highlight for us. It's got our favorite but in all of the Bible, right? We start out in verse 1. We're very familiar who we are apart from Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. That's who we are. Verse 4 is the great turn of Scripture. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And he goes on to say, And that's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast. There's our theology. There's what we love. Amen and amen. But what about the next verse? Because verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the very purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You need to understand that all of your faith is the work of God from beginning to end. And we've really been trying to hammer that out on Wednesday night, right? But you need to understand the good works for which you will be judged on the day of judgment, standing before God all by yourself, all of those good works will be found because God has been working in your heart to will and to work according to His good pleasure, Ephesians 2. You see, when God prepared you, he, he also prepared that work that He had designed for you to do. And He works in your life in such a good way to accomplish those good works. They're a guarantee for those things to take place. Does that remove you from the responsibility of actually doing them? Not at all. You're responsible. You'll be judged. But you need to understand when you're standing before the Lord and He says, Oh, what are these good things that you've done? I'll go, what, Lord? What good things have I ever done? Well, it says here you love the widows and the orphans. Are you sure, Lord? Well, yeah, I have a perfect record. I have examples to give you. You've loved the widow and the orphan. And I'll say, well, God, I can't claim that good work. You know as well as I do that work came from you. I might have had a measure of it. You might have an example for it. But I know I was not born with that in my heart. That came into my heart after I came from Christ. Ah, oh, yes, says the Lord. But it was what you did. And for that, I reward you. Do you understand when we stand before the Lord, if He finds anything good, you'll give glory and praise to Him because you'll know it's there because of what He has done. So therefore, He can look at your works to see whether or not you're justified by faith and faith alone. Because if you're justified by faith alone, the good works of God are there and they have not left your faith alone. Which brings me to a passage that you're very familiar with in James. But first, let's start off in Titus chapter 2 because we, you know, we have a ministry around here that's based off Titus. Look what Titus says. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. We love that grace, right? Let's keep going. But notice what the grace does. It instructs us to deny ungodliness. Romans 1.18 and worldly desires, and live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Keep going. 
who gave himself to redeem us, notice, from every lawless deed, and to purify himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good works. Is that it, Tyler? That's where I stop. It's the truth of the gospel. God saved you to purify you. So let's talk about your moral situation. What about your sin? What about your sin, Joy? Which sin, Lord? The immoral sin. What about that? Lord, I have nothing to claim. I'm guilty. Certainly I'm guilty. Did you not come before me in repentance? God, I begged you to forgive me. Did you not lay claim to the blood of my son? Lord, I did. Surely that's all I had. Well, in that you're justified. But Lord, I know my sin. I've been impure. Ah, but you're justified in the blood of my son, for it is in that which you trusted, so I can judge you according to your works, for you've been forgiven. Oh Lord, what about my good deeds? I don't have any. What are you talking about? You've been zealous. You've been absolutely zealous. I have not. You have. Because Christ that lives within you went to work through you. And I can tell you what good things you've done. We always say that our good works are evidence of our faith because without our works, there is no faith. In fact, Tyler, put up James 2. Uh, Travis taught us this in, in Sunday school, verses 14 through 18. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can such a faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is out clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warned and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. That's it. Says the same thing. That's why we can stand in the judgment and be held accountable for our deeds. Because if we profess faith, those things are there. So God can look at those things and determine the genuineness of our faith. We, I'm telling you, we've made faith something weird. Again, we walk into heaven. You got faith? Yeah, man. Hang on. I got it. There you go. Faith in your son. All right. Going back. We're good. It's not going to roll out that way. You have faith? Certainly have faith. Well, let's see. Because your faith will produce the works in your life that give glory to God. And your faith will produce the repentance in your life that must be. The Spirit of Christ is not in you as a dead spirit. The Spirit of Christ in you is a living spirit that works heartily. Now, let me keep going and I'll bring us to a conclusion. Notice one more element of the judgment of God is impartial. Look at verse 11. For there's, no, there's absolutely no partiality with God, meaning Jew or Gentile, national origin does not matter, male, female does not matter. There's no partiality with God. But here's the question that we need to be concerned with. How will God do this since He's treated different men in different ways? You realize, and we'll talk about this next week, the Jews have certainly received great favor from God like no other nation. They had the miracles they had the provision in the desert. They had the law. They've had it all. Even when you think about our nation as being highly favored of God, I don't know of any other nation that has the mountain of literature 
concerning Scripture that we have access to on Amazon. It's just ridiculous, right? So how in the world can God be impartial in judgment when He's treated us in different ways? Well, He explains that in the next few verses. Notice with me in verse 12. I'm out of Romans. I look down on like That's not verse 12. Look at me in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Meaning, those who are not Jews, who are not given the law, will perish without the law. The law is of no regard to them. All who have sinned under the law, the Jews will be judged by the law. And then verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, the Gentiles are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, alternately accusing or defending him. Here's what he's saying. And I got to take you all the way back to Romans 1 to explain this. You suppress the truth that's written on your heart. You never had the law written down on tablets, but you had it written on your heart. You knew adultery was wrong. You didn't need the Ten Commandments. And yet you walked in sexual immorality. You'll be judged by what you know. In the fairness and justice of God, you'll be judged in what you know. Jews, will you be judged more harshly? You better believe it. You had the law. You'll be judged by the law. Well, what about us? What have we had? Well, it seems as though every one of us has a copy of the completed works of God bound. And, and probably more than one copy. And to much is given, much is required. Oh, the things that we know. And we have to understand that God factors those into judgment because He gave us this thing. And I know you realize this, but let me remind you this. There are nations of people, and there are people groups that do not have a copy of these Scriptures in their own language. They've never had it. And we've had this since the very birth of our nation. God judges on what we know, not what we don't know. Which brings us me to the last consideration. Notice again, 2.16, judgment is brought to bear upon our hearts, not just our external actions. Verse 16 says, On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets. If you look down in verse 29, he uses that word again, Romans 2.29, but he is a judge who is one inward. Same word, secret, inward. You get the picture. And here's the example. Y'all see me externally. And there's a part of me you don't see. And frankly, I hide. Just like the rest of you. It's the secrets. It's the inward things. Those things that I'm terribly ashamed of. Guess where God's judgment goes? There's no part of you that He cannot see. There's no atom of your being that He will not consider. There is no dark place in your heart where you have tucked something away and hid it that He will not find it. His eyes are everywhere and He sees every deed as well as every thought and every motivation behind every thought. His judgment is all the way through to the depth of our being. So here's my last questions for us to consider and then we'll sing together. Since the judgment of God is based on inescapable truth and is absolutely terrifying to us all, 
The judgment of God is therefore preceded by the kindness of God. Finally, you can all take a breath. Look at verse 14, or verse 4 rather. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Again, I love the King James in this the best. Tyler's got it here for you. Romans 2 verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness? You know what God considers unrepentance? Hatred of his character. Let that sink in. What God considers your stubborn, unrepentant heart in particular sins, God considers that hatred toward his goodness. Now, if that don't make you twice, think twice about repenting, I don't know what will. I mean, we've really got to stop holding on to our things. You know it's wrong. Stop justifying it. Stop excusing it. Stop having conversations with people who you know they'll justify it for you and just deal with the truth of the matter and come before God and go, this is wrong. Forgive me and change my heart and mind about these things. That is, after all, what repentance is. So I ask you, despisest thou the riches of His goodness? Do you hate the goodness and the patience, not knowing that this is what precedes the judgment? How kind is God? You've been warned about the day ahead, and now He patiently waits for you to get things worked out, for you to turn from your sin. Stop doing those things and start doing the things that we've been commanded to do. First John, doing the commandments, because there is a day where we will each individually stand before God and be held accountable for our deeds. I'll leave you with Hebrews 4.13 and we'll pray. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things, ta-panta, every single solitary thing, is open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Terrifying? If you're in your right mind. But again... Judgment's delayed. God's still being patient. How will you respond? Let's pray.